college speaking and and Tom came up and spoke to me and I looked over there and there was another Tom. And I thought I was seeing double vision. I thought I was something wrong with my eyes until I finally for the first time realized he had an identical twin. And uh, I thought my, uh, you know, uh, Tom is a wonderful man. I didn't realize you may had two of them. And there's another one floating around here somewhere. I don't know where he is. But we appreciate Janice, all her work she's done across many years. And I also appreciate our good pastor. You know, uh, he's just one of those men that just, just steadies the rock, been faithful across the years. And I have great uh, regards and respect for uh, Warren and his ministry and his life. And it's always a joy. Anytime I get a phone call or just to be with him, it's been a real treat. <clears throat> I'm going to... Uh, take you into a very sacred passage of scripture this evening. In fact, when you study the Gospel of John, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John is like coming to the outer court of the tabernacle. The next uh, four chapters is like entering into the holy place. But when you press into chapter 17, you've gone into the grand sanctum sanctorium, into the holy of holies where Jesus is petitioning the Father. Now I have to tell you, I never go there without going so very reverently. We're invading uh, the sanctuary where Jesus is talking to his Father, and it's a very sacred passage. In fact, uh, it literally is exhaustless if you try to examine these uh, seven, uh, 26 ch uh, verses in chapter 17. But I want to take you to that chapter, John chapter 17, commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer. Uh, it is indeed the Lord's prayer because he is the one praying. And if you'd like to stand with me, I'd like to read two sections and they're not connected. There's just no way unless I'd read the entire chapter to give you the full context. But I do want to read the first four verses and then I'm going to drop you down to verse 17. John 17, verse 1. These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I might say that is the greatest definition of eternal life you ever find. It is the intimate knowledge you have of him who provided it for you in verse 3. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Verse 17, he prays, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Shall we pray? Father, we cannot express enough 
our love and our appreciation and our desire to be pleasing to you. No one cared for our soul like you have. No one ever paid the price you paid. And you love us with an everlasting love. Lord, may we get a glimpse of you and know intimately who you are and what you are all about. You know all of us, Lord, but you want to know us with great intimacy. And that intimacy is measured by our response to you. And so, Jesus, may we open ourselves without question to your scrutiny. Search us, Lord, for we would have a tendency to be charitable to ourselves. See if there be any grievous way in us. And reveal even to us quickly, Lord, that we might amend it. May we ever keep the bottom of our life equal always to the top of your light. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, some 33 years that he walked upon the earth, there was much said about his hour. Over and again, you hear about his hour. For example, there was such a thing as his hour of decision. Billy Graham, if you remember, his program was entitled The Hour of Decision. Well, Jesus, first of all, established the hour of decision. If you remember the first miracle that he performed at the marriage of Cana, you remember they, the, the uh, mother came to him and said that they were out of wine, they had no wine, and she, when he came to her and told him, or came to him and told him that, he looked at her and said, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. On many occasions, they sought to destroy Jesus. And even if you recall, they wanted to cast him over the brow of Nazareth's hill and many other times. But no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. At the Passover, we are told when his hour had come, he sat down with the 12 disciples. It was the hour of decision that he now was approaching. It was also the hour of duty, to say the least. If you remember in John chapter 12, he asked the question after having made the statement, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? All know, he said, before this cause came I unto this hour. I must be lifted up, and if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. He was now facing what he would call the inevitable, the reason for why he came. He was facing the cross. He was made of a woman. He was made under the law. He was made a curse for us. He was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. And all of this was to discharge the duty to his father and to all mankind, the duty of offering himself a sacrifice. But it was not only an hour of decision and duty, it was in the hour of destiny, because on that decision, uh, decisive hour, hangs the destiny of all the souls and sons and daughters of Adam's fallen race. This was his hour. 
Now, I say that and take time to say that because sometimes we sort of uh, pass through some of these most crucial moments of the life of Christ. In fact, the very fact that they could not lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come speaks of a preservation that he had in his life. And in the same preservation which you and I have, the enemy is limited only as what God will allow him to do. There comes a time when God may release, but until then, the hour had not yet come. Now, when I said to you, this is a very sacred passage, there are two sermons that are recorded in the Bible that Jesus preached. Now, he preached a lot of sermons, but there's only two major sermons that he preached that's recorded in the Word of God. One, of course, is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the other sermon. It started in chapter 4 of John and goes through chapter 7, or 14 rather, and goes through chapter 17. This is what is called the discourse on the Holy Spirit. Because you see, Jesus knew he was going now and he was trying to dismiss from the minds of these disciples any idea of him establishing the uh, ancestral throne of David. He did not come now to be the king enthroned. He was trying to tell them he was going to die, which they never understood until the day of Pentecost. But he was trying to tell them, though I'm leaving you, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send another comforter unto you. And he will guide you into all truth. Literally translated, he will guide you into truth, all of it. And so he gives the comprehensive teaching of the Holy Spirit. This, uh, the first sermon we receive on the Sermon on the Mount is called the Constitution of the Kingdom. But in this sermon, in John 14 through 17, he teaches us that we can have resources in order to live up to the first sermon. And the resources, of course, is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. When he finished his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, a multitude followed him. But when he finished this sermon that I'm talking to you from this evening, the very last sermon, there was just a handful, and they forsook him. In both of these sermons, there's a prayer, a recorded prayer that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 6, you remember, is what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, which is really the Lord's model prayer in response to the disciples who said, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, and he gave them that prayer. But now in John 17, this prayer is recorded. It's called the high priestly prayer, which is indeed, as I've already said, the Lord's prayer himself. In John 14 through 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples about the Father. But in John 17, he's talking to the Father about the disciples. <laughs> in fact, the former was a sermon, but this latter one is a prayer, and it's not merely a prayer. It's a prophecy. You say, why would I say it's a prophecy? When you read in verse 4, when Jesus, looking to the Father, praying, said, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, you know and I know at the time he made this prayer, the work was not yet finished. In fact, it wasn't until on the cross and suspended between heaven and earth, he cried out, it is finished. And when he cried, it is finished, I'm glad he did not say, rather, I have failed. If the final words of Christ would have been, I have failed, then I can assure you hell would have held a high carnival and the angels would have dropped dead on the streets of the celestial city and God would have retreated never to be heard of again. He did not say, I have failed. He said, it is finished. And when he said it is finished, he who was the cornerstone laid the capstone on an uttermost salvation. 
Now, why did he say, I have finished the work that you gave me to do? Because the blueprint of the great plan of salvation was given us long before the foundation of the world. You remember in Re Re Revelation 13, 8, it said Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. By the way, if that were not true, long before, if he had not made those provisions judicially before Adam's sin, he would have slid into hell and you and I would never have been here tonight. But he puts a floor under his feet and gives us all a stay of execution. And the only reason we are here tonight is because he was slain from the foundation of the world and gives us the opportunity in the few short years we have in this world to seek shelter under the cross. And so we are most privileged because the blueprint of the plan of salvation was laid from the foundation of the world long before the morning stars ever sang together, long before the sons of God ever shouted for joy, and God engaged his own son to undertake this task to its final completion. Now, Christianity is unique in its religion in many ways. I've told you before, I've studied the other religions of the world, most of them. And I can tell you none compare with the Christian religion. It stakes its veracity, its truthfulness on prophecies that were made hundreds of years before their fulfillment. For example, if you remember following the fall in the garden, the great beam of light that God gave to us was, he said, the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. That was a prophetic statement made 4,000 years before it ever occurred. And 2,000 better years ago, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy when he died outside the gates of Jerusalem to provide salvation for you and me. No religion can testify to the prophecies that they make because they never fulfill them. And every prophecy that's been made has been come to fulfillment in the biblically sense of Christianity. When Jesus said, it is finished, he stated it as, all, as, as though it was already standing forth in its final product. And he knew that it would be because his words were deeds. When he speaks, something happens. And consequently, he knew that it would be finished to the everlasting delight of God and the eternal dismay and destru destruction of the devil himself. He knew it would be completed, and that's why he could pray in this prayer to the Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Now, if I'm going to look at this work, and I'm just going to skim this prayer, and I hate to even do this, but I'm going to give you two or three thoughts I want you to cont uh, contemplate with me tonight. I want you to note, first of all, this thing called the price. The price that he speaks of. The price that he paid. And the people for whom he paid the price. And the purpose why he paid this price for that people. The price obviously is found in verse 17, or I'm sorry, in verse uh, uh, 19 when he says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself. The word sanctify in that context does not mean the same as it means for you and me. You could, sac you could substitute the word sacrifice. Sanctify in the human sense, when God sanctifies a people, it has a moral connotation which means that God has to cleanse us from sin. Jesus had no sin to be cleansed from. There was no guile found in his mouth. He was the sinless son of God. 
And the price that he is paying here is that he was willing to voluntarily and vicariously offer himself to the nails of the cross for our salvation. And when he said, I sanctify myself, he is giving himself as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. Now, when you study his earthly life and read between the lines in this prayer, let me just say to you, I get a sense, and I've never heard anybody deal with this, but I get a sense that Jesus, in the 33 years he lived here, lived a very, very lonely life. I want to show you why I conclude, conclude that's true. I know he knew something about loneliness. You remember whenever he scooped up the red earth and molded man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils. The Hebrew says the breath of lives not only physical, but also spiritual life. And then he backed off and looked at him and said, uh, it's not good that man should be alone. Didn't he know that before he ever created him in the first place? Why did he make that statement? Why did he take time to say that? And you remember, of course, what happened. He took from the side of Adam, his, from near his heart, this beautiful woman called Eve, and he blessed them both, and Adam awakened and saw this beautiful helpmate Eve and said, Now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I can tell you what I'm convinced of. I think Jesus was also insinuating it's not good that I should be alone. I do not understand why God ever wanted to expand his family, but he did. All I know is the triune Godhead sat in council one day, and they said, Let us make man in our own image and after our life. And even though man fell, we can have a familial uh, 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 relationship as his sons and daughters when we become adopted in the family of God and become heirs of Christ and joined heirs with Jesus. In fact, uh, that takes place 2,000 years ago. Speaking of the seed of the woman, the second Adam was also put to sleep. It was out from his side, if you remember, near his heart where the sword was thrust in and the blood and the water flowed and it became the efficacious stream whereby we could plunge beneath the cleansing stream and be brought back to the Father's house. Lonely. When you read phrases like, Father, glorify thy son. When you read the phrase, I have finished the work that you gave me to do, Father. When you read the words, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the same glory that I had before the world was. And you read twice in this letter, I come to thee. I'm convinced that the lure of the heavenly home was on Jesus' mind. I would think he was homesick to see the Father's face. And whenever you read his life, when you walk through the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and by the way, if you want to know what God is like, walk through those pages. Live with Jesus. You remember he came down into the city of Jerusalem one day and you can feel the passion in his heart when he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you, but you would not. His heart was breaking. I can see it another time when he stood and those of his own nation, he looked at them and said he came to his own and his own received him not. 
I can see it another time when the disciples who had been following him and, and learning from him and he was teaching them and he came to them one day and he said, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. And they misconstrued, by the way, what he was saying. That always gives me great comfort to realize they misunderstood Jesus. <laughs> They'll misunderstand me from time to time as a preacher. But they thought he was talking about cannibalism, eat flesh, drink blood. And they said some of his disciples turned and walked with him no more. But I can hear the pain when he looks over to the few and Peter being the spokesman. And he said, will you also go away? And that's when Peter, of course, said, go. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We read in the word, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Do you know the indication of that passage is it implies he did not have a dwelling place. And the best I can define it for you in our context would be he did not have any place where he could come home after a long, tiring, weary day and sort of lean back and say, oh my, it's good to be home. He didn't have any such place as that. In fact, I think the only place that he really found comfort was in the home of Mary and Martha, and that's why he went there. In fact, that's why I think on that Passion Week, that one day where there's not recorded anything that he did of that whole week from Palm Sunday to the great day of the resurrection, on that Wednesday, I think he went home with Mary and Martha and rested. And there you remember he was going to move to Gethsemane. When he faced Gethsemane, it was a dark and a lonely night. In fact, uh, if ever Jesus needed fellowship and needed relationship, it was during that time in Gethsemane. You remember he had his disciples in the three inner circle of the disciples. He went on into the inner part of the garden, and then he set them aside, and he went on deeper into the garden, and there he prayed and dropped and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he looked at them and said, pray for me, for my soul was sorrowful unto death. And when he came back, he looked up, and there they were asleep. And you can hear the pain in his voice. Could you not have prayed with me even one hour? When you realize it was occasion one time on the lake whenever the, the boat was to go to the yonder side, and Jesus was so tired, he went back to the back of the boat and went to sleep, and the storm raged, and the temp tempestuous winds blew, and the water raged, and they thought they were going to sink, and they came and awakened him and said, Carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus gets up and speaks peace to the storm. They had forgotten that. All human ties, by the way, are now severed, and he's facing the ordeal all alone. You know, he had, not, he had now eaten the Last Supper with his disciples, and Judas now had gone on out, and it was night, and traded the divine fellowship with, with the cold rattle of silver coins. They'd all now forsaken him, except very few. And all of a sudden, he heard the cock crow, Oh, we might ask the question, where's that one who said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll go to prison with you. I'll even go to death with you. Where is he now? He was now treading the dusty road, bearing the heavy cross all alone. Alone, he endures the kicking, the mocking, the spittle, the humiliation. 
the mock trials now were over and they could hear the, that mob coming down the road, lighted torches and the jeering and the laughing and the beating with the cat of nine tails that left him more dead than alive. There they stretched him out on an old rugged cross and there they drove the nails in his flesh and in the wood in his hands and in his feet and they crowned his head with thorns and the blood was gushing down and as it grew warmer and warmer the dried blood coagulated in such a way gnats and fleas and bugs would grow up in his nostrils and his eyes and he could not fight them off and the fevered body now was pulsating as never before and there on the craggy hillside of, of Golgotha he lifted them up before the crowd and suspended him between heaven and earth with a convert on one side and a criminal on the other side and by the way I've often thought about the fact with all the din, all the hate, all the anger, all the noise that was going on, Jesus could hear a thief say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. By the way, if you think he can't hear your voice, he hears you. And there he hangs. No floor under his feet but a rocking world. No ceiling over his head but a frowning providence. No walls about him but the darkness of light that invaded him at high noon. All the bonds now severed. The sun has hidden his face and darkness surrounds him. He looks over to where he has always gotten his strength. He looks over to the Father. And he was gone. I don't think you and I understand that. It's the first time in eternity's past that he was alienated from the Father. Never happened before. It will never happen again. But now, because he was made sin for us, he turned his face away from him, and he cried as never a person cried before, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You talk about loneliness, folks. He suffered it all the way through. And by the way, I'm convinced the dense loneliness was greater suffering than all the wounds in his hands and the nails and the pricking thorns and the spears in his side and the thirst that he suffered. They didn't compare with the loneliness. That's the price. But you've heard it stated and I stated to you tonight that he never considered the price he paid greater than the product that he purchased. He felt like I will be well compensated for what I, it's costing me when men and women come before me and open their heart to receive me. That's why he did it. So the price was for a people. Why would he be willing to suffer such a solitary death? Notice it, and he says, for their sakes. The people. Who's the people he's talking about? Here he's not talking about the world. He's talking about his own disciples. And in verse 20, he includes you and me, all who will believe on me through their word. He was not praying for the world in this prayer. He was not praying for the sinner. He is praying for those that God had given him. He was praying for those in whom he was glorified. He was praying for those who had kept his word. He was praying for those who were not of the world as he was not of the world. He was praying for his church. Oh, by the way, you read Ephesians 5 where it says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. If you remember, it's the same words that Adam, spoken over Adam and Eve as it's spoken over Christ and his church. It's a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. 
He wasn't praying for the world. So people ask you the question, did he care for the world? <laughs> no, he cared for the world. If you remember in John 3, 16, he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm glad he loved the world. That's me. He loved me. But I want you to note something right now. He's concentrating on a few in order that he might reach the mass. He knew a deeper work of grace must be accomplished in these hearts of these disciples if they ever stand on the day of Pentecost and if they ever reach the masses. He knew that. That's why I took time to mention to you the other evening, between the resurrection and Pentecost, there's not recorded one soul being saved. Why? The dynamic of the Spirit was not yet there. And so he told his disciples, and what he didn't tell them, he didn't say go into the hospitals and call on the sick. He didn't say go heal the, law, uh, heal the sick or the lost, go, go seeking and preaching. He said, tarry until. Go into the Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father which saith he, you've heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. He was doing this for his people. The deeper work was the supreme purpose of all of his ang anguish and agony. He was willing to suffer for 33 years on this earth and allow it to be culminated on the cross. For their sakes I sanctify myself. Why, verse 19b, that they might be sanctified through the truth. Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. You see, that very statement lifts this idea of sanctification far above merely consecration. I can consecrate without a bleeding sacrifice. But I can't get sanctified without the shedding of his blood. Therefore, it's not something I grow into. It's not something grown or gotten. It's something received by grace, not by grit. It's when I make myself a living sacrifice that the blood goes deeper than the stain and cleanses me. Why was it necessary? I said to you a moment ago, he, he, was, he was concentrating on the feud. In fact, there's only 120. And by the way, if they would have not obeyed him, if they were as loose in their obedience to him as many people are today, the church could have died right there. Do you have any other plans, God, for the church if they don't get back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father? None. Aren't you glad they were faithful? By the way, when we talk about offering ourselves in total abandon, what if Jesus went to the cross kicking and complaining and griping because he had to die? Never did. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame? What was the joy? I'm going to bring many sons to glory. Once I get through this dark hour, I don't like this. I'm going to endure the cross, but I'll do it freely because the joy is I'm going to bring many sons and daughters to heaven. If you read the fourth verse of that very Hebrew letter, it says, you've not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. He was telling those, and by the way, witness means martyr. He was telling them, you've got blood you can shed. You can give your life. We don't even like to talk like that. 
Dr. Dennis Kinlaw sharing a story with me one day, and I had the privilege of working a number of times with him, and he's, he was just a tremendous resource of truth. But he told a story about a man by the name of Joseph, J-O-S-E-F, under the Roma, uh, Romanian rule of the communists during the time, and he was speaking out, a young preacher boy, he was speaking out against the injustices of the communist nation, how they uh, persecuted the church, and, and so when he got to doing that, they came to his office and got to persecuting him. Five days out of seven, every week, they persecuted him. They beat him, they misused him, and one day, he came into his office, and they robbed him of all of his library, except for two books. One, Nye Muller, who was that great uh, Christian that stood against Hitler, and one, E. Stanley Jones, Abundant Living, E. Stanley Jones, the great Methodist missionary to India. That night, when they took all of his library and left him more dead than alive, he wasn't able to sleep. His body racked with pain because of the persecution. And he found that one book of, of E. Stanley Jones, Abundant Living. And he began to read it. And he said, I began to read it early in the morning hours. And God began to speak to me. And he said, in essence, God said to me, you're going to have to embrace your persecutors. He said, he looked at him and said, God, you don't mean I have to embrace my persecutor. Yeah, you got to embrace your persecutor. He said, God, if I embrace my persecutors, something has to happen in me that hasn't happened yet. You've got to do something that you haven't done. He said, before the sun rose the next morning, God had done this work that he did on the day of Pentecost. He purged his heart of total self-sparing. He said, the next morning they came as they had done many mornings before. And as they walked in, he said, he smiled at them. And he said, I told them Jesus loved them. The man looked at him, began to persecute him. He said, the more he persecuted him, the more he smiled. Finally, the persecutor looked at him and said, you're stupid. You're ignorant. He said, Jesus loves you. He said, I guess I've got a weapon that can destroy you. He looked at him smiling. He said, yes, you got a weapon that can kill me. But he said, i got a weapon too. He said, what weapon do you have? He said, you have a weapon that can destroy me, but I have a weapon I can die. And he said, if I die, my blood will, will cover all of my teachings and all of my letters and all of my writings, and you'll have more trouble with me dead than you do alive. And they walked out in total disgust and left him. You know, maybe our problem is we're just too much alive. For God to do anything with us. I'm speaking spiritually, you understand. Why is it necessary? It was necessary for him to die. That we could die. That's why they cried, oh, Augustine, let me die. Lest I die, only let me see thy face. Except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. My living is the outliving of him. No longer I live, Christ lives. Samuel Chadwick said, The letter and spirit of God's word and the design of the end of Christ's sacrifice to save his people from their sin, not in their sins, 
The perfection of the gospel system is not to make allowances for sin, but it's to destroy sin. Now I'm coming to a close. The people, what's the purpose? To sanctify them. You know, we don't even like to major on this topic. It's the most blessed truth that required the blood of Christ. And for some reason, we act like it's not all that important. It's of the utmost importance. Sanctification indicates ownership. In verse 9, he said, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. This gives us the right approach to God. We can call him our father. He owns us. You're not your own. But it not only indicates ownership, it establishes a oneness. Why? Verse 21, sanctify them that they may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Note the last verse of this prayer. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. You know, I read this through hundreds of times and never heard, never listened to that statement. But I want you to notice, if ever there was pure, unmixed love in the universe, it was love that the eternal God had for his only begotten son. And he said it's that same pure love he imparts to his children in sanctification. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. But most of all, he assures us of a glorious outlook. In verse 24, look what the end result. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. What's it going to be like when we see him face to face? When this faith turns into truth and light, reality. I don't know what it's going to be like. But I want to see him. I want to see him face to face. And I want to declare how much I love him. I, you know, I, I uh, read one time. By the way, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing for God to use us to serve him. You know, he said, as you sent me in the world, even so have I sent them in the world. Did it ever dawn on you how important you are to the kingdom work? <laughs> that God needs you? I don't know if we ever think about it in those terms, but I remember E. Stanley Jones made a statement one time, and I've never gotten over it, and I've been trying to grasp his, the import of his statement. He said, when I die, I want to go to heaven. And he said, I want to do like everybody else. I want to see him face to face. And he said, I don't know how long I'll get to stand there and behold the beauty of my Savior. But he said, I hope that I'm able to ask him. I have so enjoyed serving you in the world. Do you have any other lost worlds I could go serve you in? <laughs> what a statement. You know, it's an honor to be a servant of the king. We have blue blood running through our veins. We're a part of the aristocracy of the New Jerusalem. <laughs> We're going to behold his glory. And that's a word that defies definition. 
I wanted to share it with you because I think it's important for us to realize that we're just not a piece of protoplasm in this world. God loved us so much. And the price that he paid, in his mind, you know, we say it all the time, well, it's not about us, it's all about him. Well, it is in the sense that he's the only redeemer, but as far as he's concerned, it's all about you. Why would he pay a price that he paid if it wasn't about you? <laughs> he counts you worth more than the whole world. Father, we love you. That you loved us so much, you were so willing to give the gift of your only begotten son and allow him to suffer the lostness of a soul and become alienated from you. And God, how the pain of your own heart must have so overwhelmed you because of our sin that you would have to turn your back on he who became sin for us. He who knew no sin became the sin sacrifice, the offering that being the propitiation, he's our mercy seat and it's to him we can find mercy and grace. Thank you, Jesus, for dying. Thank you for tasting death for every man and triumphed over it so we could say, O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? Oh, God, how do we ever thank you? And for the blessed Holy Spirit that comes to abide and to direct and to guide and to teach, Lord, continue your work in us. And may we one day, when we leave this world, you will receive us unto yourself and you will say those beautiful words, well done. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Help us, Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.